0: our study through the book of Ruth today. Uh, Last week, we did the first half of chapter 4. As I was writing and planning, I was just going to do a chapter a week, but as I got to Ruth chapter 4, I realized that there's no possible way that I could fit uh, everything into one sermon, unless the sermon was going to be two hours. <clears throat> to which I'm all game for, but I'm not sure that everyone else is. So <laughs> last week we did, uh, the first half of Ruth chapter four, verses one through 12. And then I'm going to finish it today, starting at verse 13. So, uh, if you're able to, uh, whenever we read the scriptures before we study them, uh, we stand. So if you're able to stand, I'd love for you to stand with me right now, starting at Ruth chapter four, verse 13. Uh, I'm going to read the text that we'll study. And I'll, after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And when I say this is the word of the Lord, you'll say thanks be to God. And that just means, of course, you're saying thank you, God, for giving us your scriptures, that you would, you would speak to us through your scriptures. But also, as you say thanks be to God, let it serve for you a way in your heart to say, Lord, the things that you show me and teach me, I want to say yes to, I want to be obedient to. So starting in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So, And the women of the neighborhood gave, uh, gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy that you've given to us, uh, specifically (coughs) in the person of Jesus. And we pray that as we look at your text this morning, that all of our hearts will be drawn towards who Christ is. That you would please, God, teach us all, Holy Spirit, including me, uh, that you'll speak through me. But you'll teach us all uh, to see and understand what Christ has done more deeply and have our affections be stirred for Christ, for going to the cross for us and uh, defeating Satan, sin and death through the resurrection, and now giving us a hope of eternal life. I pray that as we study the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, that, of course, we would see how it's emblematic of the greater story, the bigger story, the meta-narrative of Scripture, that Jesus is our glorious Boaz who has saved us. And so, Lord, I pray for your help this morning. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at all of chapter 4. I said that chapter 4 was really uh, broken up into two pieces. And so the first half of chapter 4 was, you can go ahead and put it up. Number 1, the first half of chapter 4 is the legal resolution where Boaz is going to pursue Ruth and go through all the legal things that he needs to do in verses 1 through 12 to make her his wife. And we saw that last week. Don't necessarily have any time to review it. But uh, that brings us to the second half. You can go ahead and put up number 2 that's going to be 13 through 20 and that's the genealogical resolution and so if the first half shows us the legal resolution and boaz's pursuit the second half is really going to show us the genealogical resolution and on a much grander scale god's pursuit of not just the specific people in the story but even us Uh, i think that one of our greatest fears in life is being forgotten I think one of our greatest fears in life is being forgotten. And uh, it's likely that your great grandchildren won't even know your name. And so we we live in constant fear of that. And we think that we need to make a name great so that not just our family knows us, but the world knows us. And so if you look at social media, it's only amplified it that we think we put down every thought we have regarding anything on our different social medias. Because one day our children, our grandchildren, maybe this isn't a good thing, but we want them to know what we think about stuff. We don't want to be forgotten. Uh, But the truth is that we will. Uh, Most of us in our lives will be forgotten. In this particular story that we're going to see here, uh, even though that most of the world will forget us, what the, what the text is pointing us to, what the Holy Spirit is wanting you to see, the most important person will never forget you, and that's God. And so we need to live our lives, structure our lives uh, day by day, um, renewing our minds to the fact that we don't have to live in such a way that's self-involved and self-centered so that the world remembers us because... God remembers us and God will never forget us. In the text, we're going to see four ways that God demonstrates to the world that he has not forgotten them, that he has not forgotten them. Now, that means for us that that transforms the way we live our life, that we don't live uh, such to a degree that self-involvement that we're trying to make a great name for ourselves because we want the world to remember us. Instead, we live in such a way that's transformed so that the world doesn't necessarily know who we are, but they know who Jesus is because God has never ever forgotten us, nor will he ever. Now, uh, before we get started, I do want to point to someone because it is St. Patrick's day to someone the world has not forgotten. Just so you know who he is, that the reason why uh, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day is not because you need to wear green so you don't get pinched. But instead, that there's a man that that lived his life in such a way that he patterned it after that it wasn't going to be about him, but about Jesus. So the world would know who he was. And God has made it so that through the corridors of time, we actually remember him. Some 1600 years ago or so, there was a man named Patrick. He was an aristocrat. He was rich. He grew up in England. And at age 16... He grew up in the catechisms and he knew of church, but he wasn't a Christian. He lived, as it says, in very ungoverned youth and lived on the, quote, wild side. I try to do this every March so that you know uh, things about history. Uh, but nevertheless, at age 16, Celtic pirates from Ireland, some scavengers and, and, and really uh, unruly men came in and stole him from England and took him back to the the, the depraved, uh, Ireland and sold him into slavery as a cat, cattle herder. And while he was sold into slavery in Ireland, three things happened to him. One, he recalled the old catechisms of old, and he met Jesus. He became a Christian recalling uh, the things that his parents had taught him from an early age where he lived on the wild side. Once he was put into a situation where he had no one else to go, but his mind went to the things that he remembered, he became a believer in Jesus because of the things that he had told. So the first thing that happened is he became a believer in christ the second thing uh being an englishman he be- actually was here in this kind of more depraved area of ireland the second thing that happened is he began to understand the culture of uh, of the irish their language and, and whenever he did this uh it changed his heart so when one writer about him says there's no shortcut to understanding the people that you're around when you understand people that you're around you'll often know what to say what to do and how to say it when the people know uh, about the Christians around them and they understand them, they can infer that they also that the high God, that that Yahweh, that our Lord Jesus also understands them and knows them. The third thing that happened to him is that he actually began to love the people that enslaved him. He loved his captors. Uh, he identified with them. He began to pray for them and he wanted them to be reconciled to God. He was A slave as a cattle herder for six years, and around age 22, he heard that there was an English boat in Ireland, and he did not want to be a slave anymore. And he finagled himself somehow onto this boat. I'm not really sure, but he got himself on there and he escaped back to Ireland, back to home. And when he went back there, he actually entered the ministry because he was a believer now, and he immersed his mind in the scriptures and he worked. In ministry in england for about 26 years till age 48 now age 48 obviously is where most men were dying they weren't they weren't living long back then in the 400s uh but at age 48 he felt a call to go back to ireland through a dream much like paul's macedonian call a call to go back to ireland go back to the people that enslaved him back to the people that mistreated him and uh One writer says, Patrick's mission to Ireland was an unprecedented undertaking. This was because he was going to convert the barbarians that had enslaved him. Not only was it unprecedented, it was assumed impossible. So at age 48, where most men were dying... He answered the call to go back to Ireland to the people that once enslaved him. He went there, he took about a dozen people with him to Ireland, and they went on mission. They tried to engage what seemed to be the leaders of the area. Uh, and as they did this, they were hoping for their conversion. And as people sent on mission, he engaged the people. He met with them and talked with them. He looked for people that would be receptive to the gospel message. He would pray with them. He would share the gospel. They would get saved. They would come to know Jesus. He would minister to the sick. He would try to counsel the people. He would also mediate different conflicts and try to meet people's needs. This is what he did. Uh, while he was there, he also would see many people come to know Christ and he would also plant churches. About 28 years later on being on mission in Ireland, at an age a, around 76 is whenever he passed away. So he was there for a strong 28 years, just a little bit older than me. He left at age 48 and ministered for 26 years. 28 more years and while he was there in this pagan nation where he was criticized for fraternizing with pagans and sinners in Ireland he probably baptized close to tens of thousands of people. He planted over 700 churches and ordained over 1,000 men into ministry. Uh, At that particular time Ireland itself had about 150 unreached people groups and Patrick and the dozen he was with reached at least 40 out of the 150 different people groups. There's 16,000 people groups in the world. Well, One writer says he, was, uh, he won so many people to Christ and he found so many churches and ordained so many people into ministry. He kindled such a zeal in men's hearts that it seems right to believe that it was him directly due to the wonderful outblessing of Christianity which distinguished itself in Ireland in all the following years. And when someone asked Patrick about... Doing that, or one day he decided to write. He wrote this about why he decided to undertake this. He said, "God wants men to be reborn in God. He wants them to be Christ followers and redeemed from all the ends of the earth. He wants the church to fish well and spread our nets so that we can catch a great multitude for God. The church is to go into all the world, preach the gospel into all creation, and teach all the ethne, all the nations, all the ethnic groups, and make them children of the living God. And God gave me such a grace that I could go and reach people so that people would come to Christ." This is why we celebrate Saint Patrick. It's because he took up the call that to say say it's not about me, it's about God. And I want to do what he wants me to do. And so I don't want to try to necessarily make a name for myself, though that's into what happened. We, we wear green and you know do different things on, on Saint Patrick's Day. Some some immoral and some okay. But nevertheless, uh, it's it's largely because a man lived on mission. Now, the reason why I tell you that is because uh You could live your life in such a way that's not trying to make you your name for yourself, but makes a name for Jesus because you understand that you don't need to be forgotten about people because God's never forgotten you. And you could leave some amazing legacy like Patrick or maybe not. But either way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the way that we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live for Christ. Now here in this text, what I want you to see is this, is that um, God's going to demonstrate in verses 13 through 22 four ways that he has not, forgotten them and therefore he has not forgotten us you can see the first one here in verse 13 but before we do that i want to lay out for us something that perhaps uh just as a bit of a summary of the way the text the entire book of ruth has been pointing you to jesus whenever you read the old testament you should realize that you're not just reading uh kind of like microcosm stories that just have to do with just what's going on there. Every story in the Old Testament is painting a big, huge portrait for us to be able to understand the big picture of Jesus. They're all pushing us to help us see something about Jesus. And so I want to rehearse for us at least four different ways thus far that the book of Ruth has pointed us to Jesus. um, Just as a means to reorient our hearts around the good news of jesus and be thankful for the good news and be thankful for the gospel one when we start the book of ruth it starts out in bethlehem which is also known the house of bread and it tells us later on that jesus was also born in bethlehem and he calls himself the bread of life and so it begins with famine and the house of bread but in verse 1 6 it says, God Intervenes to his people and provides for them food, and therefore all their circumstances change. And so, just as God intervenes in this particular uh, book in 1 6 uh, in a grace filled way and changes uh, what's going on for us because we are uh, followers of Christ, God intervened by putting Jesus in Bethlehem, naming him the bread of life. And he visited his people and he came and lived among us for three years and then went to the cross obedient all the way to the end. And therefore, since God visits his people and changes them in the book of Ruth. God has visited us in the person of Jesus and has changed us. And he is the bread of life. That's the first way the text points us to Jesus. The second way is that we've talked about how Naomi, uh, the mother-in-law, I'm going to review if you ha- weren't here, how she re- or kind of in- is emblematic of the people of Israel and how she left just like people of Israel and went to a p- pagan land and followed idols just like us. Just like Naomi is emblematic of Israel, it's also emblematic of all of us. We will Willingly chase after sin and we have willingly gone off and sought after that but just like god showed grace to naomi and led her back to the promised land god showed grace to us through the person of jesus and we left our sinful moab area and he brings us eternally home she brings she comes back into the promised land we one day will be in the promised land in heaven with jesus another way is that naomi seeks the rest of her daughter-in-law ruth and trying to get her a husband so that as it says in, in, uh, the book of in, in the book of Ruth, uh, the word rest is not just um, feeling comfort, but instead the, in Hebrew, the book of re- or the, the book of rest, the, the word rest means security and tranquility that a woman can find in the the uh, the the people group of Israel that they longed for and expected to find in the home of a loving husband. She's seeking that kind of deep rest. And in the same way, Jesus is the husband of the church. The bride is the church and Jesus seeks our rest, our ultimate rest. As he tells us in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And the last way, of course, the most obvious is that Boaz is the redeemer For Ruth, he redeems the entire situation and changes everything about her life. In the same way, Jesus is our redeemer. Boaz loved Ruth, and so he redeems her personally. Jesus loves us and redeems us personally. Boaz worked for the redemption of Ruth and, and did everything that was necessary. Jesus worked for our redemption, did everything that was necessary by going to the cross. Boaz loved Ruth, and that's why he wanted to do it. And Jesus loves us, and that's why he wanted to redeem us. And so those are at least four ways that we can see already how the book of Ruth points us to the big story of Jesus. Now, when we get to verse 13, um, we picked it up kind of in the middle. So if you haven't been here, I'll just remind you really fast what's going on. There's these two people, Elimelech and and, and, and Naomi. They're married and there's a famine and they don't want to uh, starved to death. So this man, Elimelech, whose, whose name means my God is King. Although he, that's not true in his life, decides to leave the promised land and go off to a foreign land, thinking they can find food. The thing that he's trying not to do is die, die. That ends up happening. So he goes off to this foreign land. He dies leaving his wife. And they had two sons there. The two sons marry Moabite women. They weren't supposed to marry outside of Israel, but they did. The two sons get married to two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. The two sons die. So now you've got the mother-in-law, Naomi, and her two, her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, left. All the men have died. And they say, we're not, they, this uh, over the course of 10 years, in a foreign land. And they say, we're not going to stay here. We're going to go home. Naomi hears that there's food back home. And verse 1-6, she decides to come home. And as she's coming home, she looks at the daughters-in-law and says, don't come with me. It's just bad, follows me. Stay here. One of them stays, Orpah, and goes back to her gods. Ruth says, no. I'm a follower of Yahweh, the one true God. I believe in him. The one that you serve, I serve. I want to be a follower of God as well. I'm coming with you. So they make the trek back some 50 miles right when they get there. Um, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, decides to go start finding some food. They were allowed to kind of glean food off the edges of, of fields. And she happens to go upon this one land, that this piece of land that Boaz owns. Boaz is related to... Uh, Naomi's former husband, Elimelech. And so since he's related, he can actually, in some manner, set up in Israel, kind of buy some of Naomi's property and bring her in and then redeem the whole situation where she can be taken care of. uh, And also... She can one day have a son. But there's actually somebody that's related to a closer than him. But nevertheless, Ruth comes in. She works. Boaz finds her attractive. Boaz is interested in her. Boaz favors her and shows generosity towards her. Sends her with a lot of food home. And so when she goes home, she shows Naomi all the food. And they're like, wow, look at all this. You know, Boaz, uh, Boaz is what we know as a goel, a kinsman redeemer. He can actually uh, buy this land and everything can be good. There's someone closer, uh, but... As as Boaz points out, but this goes on for about six to eight months. I'm sorry, six to eight weeks. And finally, uh, Naomi has just kind of had enough. And she's like, Ruth, I want you uh, to go up there tonight uh, after they get all the grain in. And I want you to just lay down right beside Boaz. And say, "What do you want me to do next?" And basically, let let's see if he's going to marry you or not. Not the greatest advice. We already talked about that, but she does it anyway. She lays down beside him, and then she says, "Hey, Boaz, time to put a ring on it." And so Boaz is like, "All right, that's good." And so the next day, uh, he goes over to uh, the elders in the gate. So if they want to do official business, is what we saw last week. He goes up to the elders in the gate, he convenes everybody. He sees the, the one that's related to a limalet going by. His name's Mr. So and So. Mr. So and So over here. Hey, do you want to buy that land? Uh, if you buy that land, you can buy that land that that Naomi's selling. And he's like, let's do it. I'll buy it. And uh, no, no, no. Well, if you do it, you also have to get married to Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner. You know, that's bad. And you got to get married to her and have children with her. And he's like, uh, you know what? Don't think I'm going to do that. Don't think I want to do that at all. Um, and then we see in verse seven that the, the custom was whenever he's like, okay, well, I'm first place now. It's going to be mine. It says the custom was, this is 4-7, that in Israel, re- redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, one would take off his sandal and give it to the other person. So Mr. So-and-so takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. And it's like, okay, you can buy the land and you can have Ruth. I don't want her. And so uh, Boaz exclaims in verse 10, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I've bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead of the inheritance. The name of the dead shall not be cut off. Basically, Ruth gets to be my bride now. Woohoo! Everybody saw it. Everybody's here. Everybody's got it. And then so that's it. And so we leave off at verse 12. Like, okay, you got to go tell Ruth. Well, verse 13 picks up and verse 13 is like nine months of time. Like, it's it's really fast. But nevertheless, uh, we don't know exactly how uh, Boaz tells Ruth, all we get is that so Boaz took Ruth. So, uh, I think that he probably went home much like, you know, at American Idol when they walk out and they're like sad, like I didn't get my gold ticket. And they're like, so he knocks on the door and she's like, Guess what? And you're like, I got the sandal. We're getting married. And they all celebrate or whatever. But nevertheless, I don't know how it happened. That's just how I like to think it happened. But nevertheless, the first thing that we see is how God demonstrates that he's not forgotten them. And I want you to notice this is how it's going to happen. So uh, there's four ways God's going to demonstrate that he hasn't forgotten people. And it's going to start like this. And it's going to start widening out. And he's going to widen out like, okay, I hadn't just forgotten y'all, but I hadn't forgotten y'all. And I can't even reach this far enough. I hadn't forgotten all of y'all. And so it gets big bigger and bigger as we go through. First one is God provides a son for Boaz and Ruth. The first way that God demonstrate. go ahead and put up number A, letter A. The first way that God demonstrates that he's not forgotten us is God provides a son for Boaz and Ruth. Remember, Ruth had been married before to Malon, 10 years, stricken with barrenness, no son, no child. No way to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. And this was a big deal. It's like the, the greatest curse in Israel at this particular time is to not have a son that could perpetuate the name. So what does God do? He says, I haven't forgotten you. And so he gives them a son. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. She bore a son. This verse co- covers at least a nine month span. Boaz took her. This, this word take as his wife, it's not just kind of like, hey, give me some gum, I'm going to take it. You know, instead, it carries with it a whole lot more weight. It says that he, te- he takes responsibility for her. He takes uh, the responsibility to care for her. He's going to take the responsibility to provide for her. This is the same word that Adam took Eve as his wife in the very first marriage in Genesis 2. There's a, there's a lot of weight into it when it says taking her. And so now we see this amazing transformation of Ruth. In chapter 1, Ruth is the foreigner. And chapter 2, she's lower than all the servants. And chapter 3, she's a servant. And chapter 4, she's a wife. She's had a major move. A major move from a foreigner to a wife. And the same way that's what happens to us when we trust the gospel. We were foreigners and sinners. And now God moves us into the kingdom of the son he loves, as it says in Colossians. There, it also says in 2 second, uh, second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past as the foreigner. Bef- behold, the new has come. We're now a part of the kingdom. And so she also has this. She went from foreigner to lower the servant to a servant to wife. She has a new identity. And so God provides a son for her, showing her that... <clears throat> He cares about her and he has not forgotten. There's two major things that the book of Ruth has that, got, that has to be overcome. Famine and infertility. Both of those things have to be overcome in the book of Ruth. Um, the first one, famine, is overcome in chapter 1 verse 6. Then the Lord was gracious and brought food. Now, the writer is wanting you to see these two major obstacles that must be overcome, famine and infertility. The writer is painstakingly wanting you to see that it's God that did this. He doesn't attribute to anybody else. He doesn't say she became pregnant. She says the Lord gave her conception in 4.13. In 1.6, it says the Lord visited people and gave them food. So in 1.6, God overcomes the famine. In 4.13, God overcomes the infertility. And the writer wants you to see that all the credit goes to God. Any obstacle in your life is not going to be overcome by you or me or anyone. It's God's the one that does it because God gets all the glory. Because he's worthy of all the glory. Here the, the writer's wanting us to see that it's God that overcomes and so this 10-year marriage to Malon that produced no offspring, the prayer of the people, may you finally have a woman, a, a baby, has been overcome and it's the Lord that did it and gave them a miracle child, a baby, to Ruth and Boaz. And she bore a son. She didn't just have a child, she had a son. And for them, a son was the one that would perpetuate the name. And so the prayer that was prayed in verse 11. May she build up the house of Israel. May she build up the house of Israel that the elders at the gate prayed for Boaz whenever he made the purchase came true. She, it came true. She did build up the house of Israel. And therefore, Ruth joins the ranks of Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel. And even later, Hannah joins the rank, uh, ranks of all these matriarchal uh, ladies in the people of Israel, these highly respected ladies in Israel by giving a son to people to Israel that has, uh, sons that are great. The people prayed for this and it comes true. Ultimately the royal line or the kingly line of Israel is preserved because these two pious human beings, Boaz and Ruth and Yahweh all acted in concert to achieve God's purpose. This means that God's doing that for you right now. God is working through you to achieve his purposes. So look for it and be a part of it. Not only does God show to Boaz and Ruth that he hadn't forgotten them by giving them a son. He also, the, the story has been pointing us to what about Naomi? She went away ha- filled, but she was empty and then she, or, she went away full and then she became empty because she lost her husband. She lost her son. She comes back in the end of chapter one, really angry and really mad and empty. She says, don't call me Naomi, Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. I, I went away full, but I've come back empty. I'm, I'm, sad. So the second way we see that God's not forgotten. Go ahead and put up uh, letter B. God provides a redeemer for Naomi. God gave a child to Boaz and Ruth. B, that's C. Put up B. God provides a redeemer for Naomi. Who's the redeemer? Well, we all think it's got to be Boaz, but it's not. Watch what it says here. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The redeemer for Naomi... It's not Boaz. It's this little baby boy. It's this little baby boy. And so God provides a redeemer for Naomi in the person of Obed, the little baby. And now when we look at verses 14 through 16, there's uh, really two, two things I want you to see. The first is in chapter, or verses 14 and 15. That's the, the blessing that's offered. And the second is in verse 16, where we see that now she, she went away empty and had co- went away full and came back empty. But now that she's empty, God brings her back to f- full again. So first, let's look at the blessing that's offered. And in this blessing in verses 14 and 15, the women, it says, then the women said to Naomi, this is likely the women of uh, Bethlehem in verse Chapter one, verse 19. If you remember when she came back in, all the women were like, Naomi, you're back. Yes. And she's like, stop being nice to me. I'm mad. <laughs> it's likely those women, which means even though she was Mara, bitter to be around, these women step, kept staying around her. They kept encouraging her. They kept coming back. They weren't put off by her negative attitude, but they kept coming back, caring for her. And now they're with her and, and walk through her, through the valley. And now they get to rejoice with her in the mountaintop. We should do that as well. We should walk through people, walk with people just like these women of Bethlehem. These are great women. We should look at them and say, yes, that's the kind of person I want to be. I don't have to hang around just around the pleasant people. Even when people are sad, I can come around them. These women are great women. And we should look at them and pattern our lives after them. Then the women said to Naomi, and they, they, they offer up a three-part, three-fold blessing to God. One is... The first, one is, the first section is a blessing and a praise to God. They just spontaneously outburst praise to God. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. God didn't forget you, Naomi. And here's the proof. He gave you a redeemer. And that redeemer is not Boaz, but it's the baby. It's Obed. So bless God and praise God for doing that. He showed you chesed uh, kindness, this unconditional love. That's the first thing. The second thing that they pray, not just a blessing unto God. The second thing they pray is awesome. You can see it there, continuing. Um, Blessed be the Lord, has not left you to say that Redeemer. And here's the second one: May His name be renowned in Israel. Very end of fourteen. May Obed's name be renowned in Israel. Renowned means let His fame spread all over the place. Now, if you remember last week, the elders at the gate prayed for the renown of boaz and when they prayed for the renown of boaz you can see it in verse uh, the very end 11 may boaz be be renowned in bethlehem so the elders at the gate kind of pray small they say and all of this city right here boaz may you be renowned in bethlehem the women of israel or the women these particular women say may may obed not just be renowned in bethlehem may he be renowned in all of israel everybody that's a huge prayer they expand it way out. They want his name to be widespread. Not just that his name would like Boaz to be renowned in Bethlehem. But they want Obed's name to be renowned in all Israel. And I think that might come true. I think it might have had come true. I'm pretty sure it did. Um, but anyway. The third thing they pray is this. A heartfelt prayer towards Naomi. Verse 15. He shall be res- this, this baby he will be a restorer of life to you. And a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. Now. I want you to see what they say. This heartfelt prayer towards Naomi. They pray that the baby, these are beautiful words, that this baby would be a nourishment for you and a means of restoration for you. This is a great thing to pray for someone. Whenever you know someone is hurting in the church, be like these women. Go to them and pray that the Lord would restore them pray that the Lord would nourish them. We should look at this and be just like these ladies and get around people in our church that are hurting often, not just the people that are pleasant to be around, but those that aren't and stay with them and walk through them through the tragedy like they did so that whenever, and you pray, may God nourish you, may God r- restore you, may this happen. The, the new hope that Naomi had a glimpse of in chapter two is finally coming to full fruition here. And the ladies got to be a part of it because they prayed with her all the way through it. We should look at these ladies And be like them. Be around people. And don't just say, I'm going to pray for you whenever I think about it when I'm driving in my car by myself. Actually, if someone says something, say, Can I pray for you right now? Yes. And then actually do it right then. It's way better. It's always way better. I promise you. Don't just say, I'm going to and then forget later. Say you're going to do it and then do it right then there with them. Now, she, she makes These ladies also have this astounding, astounding bit that they say here. After they say that they're going to pray for this baby to be a nourisher and a restorer of life to you in your old age. They said this about Ruth. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. This is remarkable. This is the most remarkable part of their prayer. That there's two things. They're your daughter-in-law who loves you and that she's more uh, she, who has more to you than seven sons. We'll look at both of those. First, your daughter-in-law who loves you. Um, she's comment, the, the ladies are commenting on the Christ-like love of Ruth. Ruth at any turn and every turn seemingly would have been like, it would have been understandable for her to say, you know what, Naomi, you're a bit too much for me now, <laughs> and I'm not going to stick here with you. But Ruth has shown unbelievable hesed love towards her. W- stays with her. I'm going to follow your God. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to go out to the fields and find the grain and bring it back to you, Naomi. I'm going to uh, bring overcome this major thing of famine in your life. And your, your husband who's, who's dead and your two sons who are dead, their line is dead. I'm going to bring restoration to your entire family name by getting married. And this son gets to fall in the line of Elimelech. And you actually get to have the overcoming of infertility in this family. Family as well. Ruth is serving her amazingly and it's being picked up on. And one commentator says it this way, love that's being demonstrated. This love is not demonstrated primarily in just words like we mostly do, but instead it's being demonstrated in acts of Hesed love, placing the welfare of Naomi ahead of herself, Ruth. In fact, more than anyone else in the history of Israel, Ruth embodies the fundamental principle of this nation of Israel's ethic that you should love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Ruth embodies it more so than anybody else in Israel. And then he says this, this is awesome. In Leviticus 1934, Moses instructs all the Israelites to love strangers as they love themselves. And ironically, it's the stranger, the foreigner from Moab that shows the Israelites how to love the way that God commanded the love of the Lord your God as your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. Ruth embodies the love of Christ more than anybody else in the Old Testament. And so when she says... In this particular text, uh, your daughter-in-law who loves you, it's supposed to be understood in the full backdrop of what's been happening in the book of Ruth. And it's supposed to help us see, wow, she's just like, she's just like Jesus. Therefore, church, the world should look and learn about love from us. The world should not love better than us. And they shouldn't learn what love means from anybody else besides the church. Who better to show the world what love looks like than the church? Are we showing the world how to love? Hesed, sacrificial love. This, is, this place, this church, and the church, churchwide, is where people are going to learn about the Hesed love of God. Not from phil- uh, philanthropic non-Christians. Not from really rich atheists that just want to help people. They're going to learn about the love of Christ from us. So are we doing it? Are we demonstrating it? Second line, that's awesome. Who is more to you than seven sons. Seven sons in Israel was thought to be the ideal family given by God. After the tragedy that befalls Job, if you read the very end, He's res- his family is restored. He's given seven sons and three daughters, ten children. I mean, we're hitting all the magic numbers of God there, right? And so it's, it's, it's meant to be the ideal family. And they say to her, hey, Naomi, this daughter-in-law foreigner Ruth is better than seven sons. Ruth is better than the ideal family. This is an amazing block says, this is an amazing affirmation of the character of Ruth. All Bethlehem knew that she was a noble woman in chapter three, verse 11, but these women place her, her value above seven sons. What an extraordinary compensation for the two sons that Naomi had lost to be able to receive Ruth. So (laughs) it helps us see just how amazing Ruth is. Just how amazing Ruth is. And then it, the, uh, that's, that's the first part of her saying, God saying, I haven't forgotten you, Naomi. The second part, which is verse 16, is she was empty and now God's going to f- make her full completely. You can see it in verse 16. This is so great. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. That's, that's like the nanny. Became the nanny. So her response to the blessing of the women is in three simple verbs. Took the child. Much like taking a husband. She's going to take responsibility. She's going to receive the blessing of God. And say yes to it. Number two. She laid the child. It says on her lap. This is really more her bosom. But not for the nursing purposes. But just the front of her body. Laid the the child on the front of her body. Where we hug. It's, 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 It's indicative of helping us see. That she is showing deep affection to the child. She's so thankful. So. She receives God's blessing and she shows the proper emotion and affection for the blessing of God. And the third one is, she became his nurse nanny. This means she is embodying and taking responsibility of being and and actually carrying through the loving actions of this new status she has as grandma, nanny. So that's the same thing we do. When God has blessed us, we receive the gift. We say yes to it by saying I am emotionally involved and I can affectionate towards this, and I am going to actually carry out the, all the actions necessary that that correspond with the, this blessing that you give me. That has to do with salvation in your life. You receive it, you thank God for it, and therefore you live as a believer. Or a task that He's given you for His glory. I receive this task. I'm thankful for this task, and I'm actually going to carry out the task. The first one obviously would be the Great Commission. We're, we we do this like she does. And then we will be like her from empty to full. And so we see here in verse 16, 14 through 16, that not only has God not forgotten Boaz and Ruth, God has not forgotten Naomi. But he's just getting started. The story's over, but he's just getting started. It's time for him to show not just Boaz and Ruth and not just Naomi. But remember in the period of Judges, as it says in Judges twenty-one twenty-five, they had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. The people of Israel must have thought, well, God's forgotten us. We've had a downward, downward spiral of depravity and sin. Everybody's getting worse. Nobody lives for God. God has surely forgotten us. And so God's expanding it out even further and say, oh, no, Israel, I haven't forgotten you either. Look at C. Put up number C for me. God provides a king for Israel. Remember what it said in Judges 21, in 25. In their day, there was no king. They needed a king, not just to have someone who was strong in battle to protect them against all the enemies trying to take their land, but they needed a moral compass to show them the way towards living towards God. This is how you live for the glory of God. Now, If you've read Israel's kings, they have their ups and downs. (laughs) Some of them are good, some are bad. And the greatest king, of course, is David. And he had some good periods and he also had some terrible periods. But nevertheless, it says, this is a man after, after God's own heart. Not Saul, David. And so, he's helping them see that Obed's not the end of the story. As you can read here in verses 17... The, the writer, if you're reading this for the very first time, this was written, you know, after David had lived. We, everybody knew who David was. And so it was written after David had lived. And they're reading this love story and you're like, okay, this is, this is great. And then when you're getting to it, the writers, if, just imagine the Israelite for the very first time reading this who knew who David was. And all of a sudden you're realizing, oh, this isn't just about Boaz and Ruth and a love story. Look what happens. Oh, that's who Obed was. They, the women in the neighborhood gave him a, a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. and They named him Obed, who is the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's, you know, exploding head emoji. You're like, what? David. And so you, expanding it out. God has not just forgotten Boaz and Ruth and Naomi and therefore you. God has not forgotten Israel. God has not forgotten his people. Church, God has not forgotten us. It's not just the end of the story. He provides David. David would be the one who would be the king of Israel, the greatest one. I've been reading First Samuel with my two little boys, Tristan and Liam, uh, and Aiden, and Aiden. Um, he he likes to listen in, but mainly I've been making sure that Tristan and Liam are getting the story of First Samuel. And second Samuel. And we're, we just finished chapter 15, where finally Saul has just kind of finished it off. And he's, he, he keeps not doing the way, living the way that God wants. He made the sacrifice. And that's not his job. That's Samuel's job. And finally, God's like, Saul, you had your shot at king. It's, oh, Samuel comes and tells him, you're not going to be the king. He's like, please let me be the king. And Samuel's like, you're not going to be the king. And so we pick up next at 16, where Samuel's sad. It's, it ends 15. And God lamented that he made Saul king. He, he had, he was sad that he did it. And then 16, you have Samuel mourning the fact that Saul's not going to be king anymore. And he comes to him. God comes to Samuel. and He's like, why are you crying? I got somebody else going to be better. Go to the house of Jesse. It's about to get going. And so we're, we're right there. And when we see that, we're seeing that God had a plan the entire time that it was not going to be Saul. That would be the, the great king of Israel. It was going to be David. And so he goes there and he has lots of sons. You know, the story, I'm not going to read it to you uh, right now. Anyway. The whole point is this. God provides a king. And when everybody sees, reads this and sees David, they're like, wow, David was the greatest king. Therefore, we can read it this way. Um, when, when he says, I, I'm going to give you Obed to this family, who fathers Jesse, who fathers David. This means without Boaz and Ruth, we have no David. And without, Bo, without David, we have no Solomon. We, ha- we have no great king. We have no Psalms. We don't have the book of Psalms almost the entire book wouldn't even have ultimately really, we don't have Jesus, but God says, I haven't forgotten you. I provided a King for Israel. Now I don't want to pass this by. This doesn't have anything to do with point C, but nevertheless, it's still amazing. Um, just to show you, uh, how groundbreaking, I guess the book of Ruth is look at verse 17. It says the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying the, A son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. This is pretty astounding. This is the only place in the Old Testament where uh, groups of women are present whenever they're naming a baby. Usually the mom might be there and it's usually the dad that's naming. Here we have not just... I'm assuming that Ruth and and, and Boaz are there. But the text is telling us that the women of the neighborhood, the women of 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 the community are the ones that gave the name. Only place where women, besides a mom, is present at a baby's naming. It, I don't think it means that Boaz and Ruth weren't there, or maybe they didn't even have some kind of uh, say-so, but nevertheless, the emphasis is given into the chorus of women, giving him a name and celebrating, and they name him Obed, short for Obadiah, short for Obadiah, which means servant of Yahweh, servant of God. This is his name. This is pretty awesome. And the women of Israel, the women of the neighborhood of Bethlehem, get to give him this name. And then you get to verse 18 and you're like, surely this has got to be it. Well, it's not it. And for those that read the New Testament, see that God wasn't done done just by showing that he had provided a king for Israel. D, go ahead and put up D. Not only has he provided a king for Israel, God has provided a Messiah for the world. God has presi- provided a Messiah for the world. Look at the genealogy, 18. These are the generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron Ram, Ram Abinadab, Benadab Nashon, Nashon Salmon, Salmon Boaz, Boaz, Abed, Obed, Jesse, and then David. Now, if we stop there, we're just like, yeah, we already said that uh, in verse 17. But Matthew continues the genealogy for us. We talked about it last week when we looked at Matthew because we wanted to talk about Bo- Boaz's father. I'm sorry, Boaz's mother, Rahab. But if you flip over to Matthew chapter 1, we actually have the full uh, genealogy given to us. That genealogy in Ruth chapter 4 is finished in Matthew chapter 1. So if you look at Matthew chapter 1, you can start at verse 6. Matthew 1, 6 says, Jesse, the father of David, the king. I'm not going to read the rest, but if if you go from verse 6 down to 16, 16 says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born, Jesus, who is called the Christ. So Ruth 4 points us to Matthew 1, where we say, he's not just forgotten Israel. He has not, not just forgotten Israel. He's also not forgotten the world. Not just every believer in Jesus, every unbeliever, everybody. God has provided a savior for the world, a Messiah for the world. That means God has not forgotten anybody in this world. And so our job as believers in Christ is to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus to them. Now, everybody that was uh, in the Old Testament who didn't have, who didn't have uh, Matthew chapter 1 as a way to know that that was what God was promising still had a, ba- a way to, to know this. Because if you look at Second Samuel... The genealogy isn't listed, but the promise still is made in 2 Samuel. So everybody in the Old Testament already knew the promise anyway. Nathan comes to David and he says to David, I'm going to establish your kingdom. I'm going to give you a time of uh, where nobody's going to try to kill you. All the enemies around you aren't going to be able to, to try to kill you anymore. I'm going to protect you. I want you, but while I'm doing this, I want you to build me a house. God says, I want you to build me a house. I don't have anywhere to dwell among my people. Build me a house. You can't do it. Because you've killed too many people. But your son, who's going to eventually come, he's going to be the one that's going to build my house, my temple. That's Solomon. And whenever this happens, Solomon's going to build my temple. And this is what he says. Um, I'm going to pick up in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, talking to David, I'll raise up your offspring after you. That's Solomon, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish that temporal kingdom of Solomon. And he shall build a house for my name. And watch this. I will establish the throne of his kingdom, not temporarily, forever. And so the genealogy listed for us in Matthew is promised in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7 is an important text. Like if you, as a Christian, what are some texts I should always know? Second Samuel 7, the promise of the forever Davidic line, kingship. That's a pretty big one for us to know. And here it is. I will establish his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, uh, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And I took it from Saul. I won't take my love away from Solomon like I did from Saul, whom I put, whom I put away before you. And here it is. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. Now, the people of Israel said, Oh, wait a second, that's a pretty astounding promise. Somebody that's related to David one day is going to be setting up a kingdom forever, which points us to Jesus. And whenever he came, everybody thought. Surely when he finally comes, this Messiah, he's going to come and strength. He's just going to destroy everybody like David used to be and set up the kingdom. Well, that's the second coming. The first coming was not like anything anybody expected. Meek and mild. Lived a perfect life. Obedient all the way to the point of the cross. Obeyed the Father. Died for all of sins. Defeated Satan, sin, and death in the resurrection. Went and is ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then the second coming... Well, he is going to be a bad dude then. <laughs> he is going to destroy everybody that, uh, that goes against him. And set up the promised eternal kingdom from 2 Samuel 7. God has not forgotten us. He's provided a Messiah for the world. A Messiah for the world. And the story of Ruth is important because it reminds us at the end of history, when, in Revelation 22, 6, when all the nations are worshiping Jesus, and it says, who is the root and descendant of David. That's Revelation twenty two sixteen, pointing us all the way back to Ruth chapter 4, that God's promise that He hasn't forgotten us because Jesus is the greater David. So God has not for, only not forgotten Boaz and Ruth and Naomi and His people, He's not forgotten the world. This transforms the way we live. This makes it so that we don't live trying to make a name for ourselves so that we can be remembered. Instead, we live trying to make a name for Jesus because he will always be remembered because it doesn't matter if people remember us. God has not forgotten us. I want to conclude with this. Um, I want to conclude with two amazing means of grace from God finishing out the book of Ruth. And both of them are uh, centered in on how these graces are being conveyed to the women in book of Ruth. First, there's grace in the genealogy. There's grace in the genealogy. The book of Ruth has showed us from Tamar, the lady that seduced her father-in-law Judah, to Rahab, a prostitute that gave birth to Boaz, to Ruth, the the foreigner Moabite woman who was ushered in, and then ultimately even to Bathsheba uh, that gave birth to uh, Solomon, but was David's wife, the wife of Uriah, whom David committed adultery and murdered Uriah. From all these women, God is showing us grace in the lives of these women. And of course, all the men listed in the genealogy. But even in the women, he's showing us how God uses all kinds of people to accomplish his purposes. From Tamar to Rahab to Ruth to Bathsheba. God's demonstrating to us that he uses all kinds of people to accomplish his purposes. Which means he uses every single one of you in this room. Because we're all kinds of people to accomplish his purposes. God wants to use you to accomplish His purposes. There's grace in the genealogy screaming out to us that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter how much money you make, it doesn't matter who your parents are, it doesn't matter anything about you. God will use you to accomplish His purposes. That's first, grace in the genealogy. The second is grace in the conceptions. Grace in the conceptions. Over and over, one of the things that had to be overcome in the book of Ruth was infertility. That's for Ruth. But historically, as you look through the Old Testament, from Sarah to Rebecca to Leah to Rachel to Ruth, even to Hannah later on who gives birth to Samuel, we see the grace of God overcoming the barrenness in these women and then giving them conception, breaking through infertility and giving them a child. Here's where it's awesome. Here's where it's awesome. Grace in the conceptions, because it's not just that he overcomes infertility through the natural means to give a baby. He overcomes virginity through the supernatural means to give us the baby jesus there's grace in the conceptions not just for women who pray lord please give me a baby and he finally gives to him but he overcomes even more so god breaking through virginity to give conception to mary because god the father was Jesus's father. She had to be born, not of man, because Jesus had to be perfect when he was born, not had the sinful nature of man so that he could live a perfect life for us because we're incapable. So therefore, since he was born of a virgin and he was able to live a perfect life, he lived a perfect life for us. And so when we, whenever we say, well, I can never be perfect. Then God said, that's right. You can say, Jesus perfection comes to me. All my sin goes to Jesus and now you're forgiven forever because you take on the perfection of Jesus. He takes your sin. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. And when we go to heaven, we say, all I have is Jesus. I plead the blood of Christ on my behalf. He lived perfectly for me. The only way that I would ever be able to come to heaven and be with Jesus is because Jesus' perfection has been given to me. So there's grace in the conceptions that God just didn't overcome infertility for these women in the Old Testament. He actually overcame virginity. And gave us Jesus. King Jesus. Matthew 21 says. Is the one who's born. Who takes away the sins of his people. Matthew one twenty-one, Right after the genealogy. And Saint Clair Ferguson summarizes the book of Ruth saying. This is God's way. He takes the weak things of the world. And through them. He confounds the things that are mighty. Through the things that are low and despised. He shames the strong. And so the house of bread Bethlehem. Will one day give. Uh, birth to, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the bread of life is what Jesus called himself. The house of bread gives birth to the bread of life and he'll be the bread of life for all women and men who trust in him. Amen, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this. This is just an amazing story of your Hesed grace. And so I pray that as we see the graces in the genealogy, the graces in the conceptions, and the overwhelming graces throughout this entire book, and all of it points us to Jesus, that our hearts would be set aflame for Christ. We would be amazed and thankful that you have loved us, that you haven't forgotten us. And therefore we don't have to live our lives trying to make a name great for us, but instead we live our lives making Jesus's name great. Because the only one that matters, that, we don't, that won't forget us is God And we know that he won't ever forget us. So use us, Lord. Use us for your glory and for your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.